0: So money is symbolic meaning that we apply to some physical thing.
1: Money is energy and information. Mm -hmm. And if you have energy, you're a rich
2: nation. And what money really is, is opportunity.
3: A technological tool to express volatility, you know, between two
4: parties. The love of money is pervasive. That's right. And there is no checks on that.
5: Asking that particular question, it seems to be serving... As a psychological mirror of swords.
6: This is a huge question that we don't understand. I think Bitcoin exposed that. And
0: I shouldn't argue that it isn't money. I'm just saying it ain't just money. It's much more than that. Yeah. Hey,
5: everybody. Welcome to the What is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. again that's wolf W O L F N Y C dot com
0: the awesome work that's happening on lightning with the with the new stuff that's happening on noster with with all these other second layer stuff i think what we're seeing is uh the strangler fig pattern in in software which is we i know that we've talked about like Kudzu. um oh, yeah. you got a tree you got a strangler fig the way a strangler fig works is it like It's really strong and it grows up the tree and it grows up the branches. It's not like kudzu where it's like flimsy. It kills the tree. The tree rots out. What's left is this beautiful like spirally exoskeleton vine called the figler, the strangler fig vine. It strangles out. So this is a term used whenever you're replacing an old school outdated architecture in cybersecurity with a new school um, architecture. And the way it works is you create this new architecture and then you just add one feature, you take one feature off old architecture and add it to the new one. Hmm. And then as you're adding more features to this new architecture, you're slowly strangling out the old one until hmm. so the old one dies away and you're only using the new architecture. Bitcoin is the strangler fig pattern to the internet and and money is the first is the first wrap around the tree. Hmm. But wow. but next is freedom of speech. Right. Next is decentralize this. Next is decentralized that. You're going to you're going to add more functionalities. That's what yeah. like the second other layers and other stuff is. Yeah. Until you get to a point where you've created a physically secure, thermodynamically sound base, new base layer of internet that you can use for all the most sensitive control actions that you need to um, defend yourself in and, and a global macro chip a global macro trip. Every, people need a, 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 a base layer power projection protocol. All people and nations are missing a way to project power against each other in, from, and through cyberspace. Bitcoin has solved that by converting power itself to bits. It's the most elegant and simple solution you could think of. It's just you don't see it because we're talking about
5: money. We're not well, talking you know, about it. It's intimately connected, though it is close to the time. elemental question of what is money one of the defining features of money is that it preserves purchasing power across time yeah purchasing power um and purchasing power only exists as a result of monetization so maybe it is again just the words we're using to get kind of yeah. one layer deeper right if you look right beneath money well what is money doing is preserving purchasing power what is purchasing power it's this sort of Non-legal, informal claim on the efforts of others—a socially emergent agreement, if you will. Um, but it's also that's just the energies of man. Obviously, there's also the energies of watts we're producing and selling to the Bitcoin mining network to secure our property and and certification and authentication and all the monetary protocols that it enables. So it's fascinating. Think think
0: about this. Y- you've said and argued that money is information. Okay. We've argued that a computer is information, symbolic meaning that we apply to some physical thing. So money is symbolic meaning that we apply to some physical thing. We we we, we apply this
5: information. We convert gold into information. It's a game theoretic symbolic assignment. Like yeah. no one decides. We kind of all figure it out. We zero in on it over time. And And
0: gold is a great way to convert a physical thing into information because it's physically constrained. Right. You can't find it. Yeah. It's hard to move. Uh, So it is actually, because of that physical constraint, a great way to secure your information against exploitation. That's why gold is great money. Yeah. Okay. We changed off gold to uh, a computer network. But it was a computer network where some person behind the scenes has the ability to... Print money at zero marginal cost, they can exploit you through that. So what you've effectively done is just found another base layer physical phenomenon to to apply symbolic meaning to to represent the information that you freely choose to call your money. It's it it makes perfect sense that Bitcoin would be digital gold. And I shouldn't argue that it isn't money. I'm just saying it ain't just money. It's much more than that. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense that the first use case for the most physically secure information network ever built, this reverse optimized network that empowers people literally to physically constrain bad guys the way nature works would be, it makes perfect sense. That would be, you know, a perfect money, perfectly scarce and super secure. The most secure thing we ever did, the most powerful, the most efficient power projection system. Of course, it's going to be good money, but it's going to be a lot
5: more than just good money. It's going to be everything. So there are, problems i guess with actually what we're what i've been doing and many of us have been doing in the bitcoin universe which is framing bitcoin purely as money um and now as i mentioned earlier and i think i mentioned this to you offline one of the interesting things about my journey on this show asking people the question what is money is i've run into what i call the insufficiency or inadequacy of language it's like again we're trying to describe this infinitely fluid and complex reality with these little discrete data packets called words that we may or may not have consensus on the meaning of each between our minds you know presumably we're running the same open source software of english but in most of my experiences people seem to have slightly different definitions of words in mind and that spurs a lot of arguments um This is something more than money, perhaps, depending on what money is. We're not really sure, so that's an open question. Um, And it's, I like what you said, too, that this is definitively more than money because power predates money by at least 13.7 billion years or the life of the universe, uh, given that under the current paradigm, and maybe this paradigm's under question now, too, the Big Bang is like the most powerful event and known history. Um, and so what we have with Bitcoin is perhaps a need to linguistically reframe it as more than money, maybe something like a cybersecurity protocol. I mentioned I had Sailor here yesterday. He's reframing it as a certification or an authentication or property protocol, some combination of all three. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of landed on, you know, money is one half of every transaction. So if Bitcoin fixes money, then it fixes maybe half the problems in the world. But there's still this other half of all all the things you just laid out here that humans deal with. But Bitcoin does seem to have some impact here as well, which is really fascinating. So what, and you called this, I think a high marginal cost internet, I think was the term you used. What, just to ask about the framings of Bitcoin and the, Cost and benefit of framing it differently how do you think we should be framing this novel innovation the benefit
0: of framing it
5: differently is you
0: make it so that the department of treasury and the federal reserve are the last people qualified to talk about the national strategic security implications of this technology so you exactly. can completely defeat that argument the benefit of calling reframing it is you defeat the ESG argument because the ESG argument is it's inefficient uh, money. But if you frame it as a power projection technology, then it's actually the most efficient power projection technology human civilization have ever created. Right. Because it allows you to project infinite sum, theoretically infinite sums of power. There's no limit to how many watts that we can harness to secure our data. Right. And because we have chosen to monetize that process it is the least costly form of power projection technology because it's we're actually getting paid right to def- to secure our to project power to secure our stuff so efficiency is how m- how many watts are you projecting versus what's the cost of doing that and in every dome in every way you look at bitcoin it is the most efi- efficient form of power projection because one you get rich doing it right right two no one dies three infrastructures built yeah uh you we, all the stuff that you see energy gets cheaper bounty program for cheaper energy yeah yeah so so and if and so th- this is the cost and benefit the benefit of calling it a weapon is you 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 say it's the most efficient weapon ever built it will secure what you value it, as long as it doesn't have mass it'll secure your money better than or your property yeah uh better than anything ever done it, it won't kill anybody it won't harmony thing you just have to suck it up and call it a weapon
3: like what is you know no pun intended for your show but like what is money it, <laughs> it's like a trust communication a technological tool to express volatility you know between two parties um generally you know obviously you know economically and there's been a bargaining problem kind of situation but you know, that requires, uh, you know, the state change of this triple accounting ledger is is this immutability and this uncensorability. Um, and that can be obviously applied to not just financial data, but just all kinds of data.
5: Okay, let's talk about nation state adoption and some political candidates you mentioned. and I'm not going to pronounce his name correctly, probably. Ridwan Kamal. Ridwan Kamal. Ridwan Kamal. Who's the governor of West Java? Yes, in Indonesia, which is a jurisdiction of like 50 million people in it. Um, you're working with
1: him on him, orange filling him. What's what's going on with that guy? All of the above. Yeah. Okay. So he's recently orange filled, and uh, he sees the potential for Bitcoin to transform Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So we talked last time, and it was a great discussion about you know what is money, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm I'm trying to accelerate that message with with politicians and I teach them what money is because I think that is actually the best avenue to get them to understand bitcoin. Mm-hmm. If you don't understand what money is, then you don't really see the potential for bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? You see it as a technology mm-hmm. or maybe just a a stock even, mm-hmm. right? But it's far more than that. It's a transformation of very fundamental parts of civilization. But I tell them, you know, money is bitcoin. Bitcoin is money. And now what that means is money is energy and information. Mm -hmm. And if you have energy, you're a rich nation. And that usually gets them very interested. Mm. In the case of Indonesia, he's well aware. It's a very energy rich nation. Mm. They're the second highest in terms of geothermal potential in the world. They have, I think, 2,000 some odd megawatts of geothermal potential. They have 800 rivers to tap into for wow. hydropower. And with that transformation of money being energy, you're a very rich nation if you have that. Right. So they just need ways to tap into that. And of course, he's also interested in the concept of a Bitcoin bond. Mm, interesting. So that's a great poetic framing
5: even, right? He said, money is energy and information. If you've got energy, then you are a rich nation. Yes, very simple. Uh even rhymes. Yeah. Um, what the geothermal potential of Indonesia, I guess they're in the ring of fire, right? So it's the most volcanically active place in the world, I believe. Yeah. Is it the geothermal potential is from volc is it volcano mining? Is that what we're talking about? Or is this just it actual Oh it would be. Okay.
1: And they're already doing a public private venture to do volcano mining. Okay. What is, so geothermal is where you dig
5: straight into the ground and harness Earth's thermal energy. That's right. What's the difference between that and
1: volcano mining? It's just mining with that energy. It's like a a brand for geothermal powered mining facilities. But yeah, you drill these wells down and you um, take the water out in the form of steam Mm -hmm. and you power turbines and then you put it back down the well. And actually you can get energy when you push it back down as well. So as you get energy, taking it out, and then you get energy putting it back in, and you just convert that to Bitcoin. So when you can't export that easily, right? Mm-hmm. Like where where would they if they built a a large array of geothermal plants? Mm-hmm. What are they going to do with it? They can't send it to Australia. They don't mm-hmm. have a neighbor mm-hmm. that will buy from them. But if you can turn that energy into money, you can sell it. Right. The other interesting thing is I tell them. Even if you don't want the Bitcoin, you can simply sell it. Yeah. If you value gold, if you value dollars, it's there for you to take. Right. You just take the Bitcoin and sell it. It's the most liquid market on the planet Yeah. with some $40 billion of trade volume daily. Mm. So it's almost irresponsible not to tap into that yes. and take it, build roads, build hospitals, build airports, Yeah. whatever you need. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I would like to, I'm just reminded right now, the
5: analogy used last time for a nation state of a hotel, right? Like like it needs to, I guess, provide certain amenities and a certain level of security to its customers. Um, And it does seem kind of like extremely low hanging fruit. If you have unused or underused energy resources that you can now turn that into money, globally saleable money in a 24 by seven market. That's basically irresponsible, right? If you're not harvesting that. But what, so that seems extremely obvious. What are the, I mean, what are the impediments to getting people to that realization? Is it just the fear and ignorance related to Bitcoin or or what are, what are the roadblocks?
1: I think it's really just education. Like we say this very often, Mm -hmm. but it is education. A lot of the times when we engage with these politicians, some of them have no understanding of Bitcoin and you have to start from literally zero. And you need people going there and being Bitcoin ambassadors and helping to educate. So in Indonesia, there's a friend of mine, Bobby mm-hmm. uh, Robert, also Robert. Ah, okay. And he's uh, running uh, Bentos, and he's been doing a lot of great work there. He's that partner that's helping them set up their mining operation, mm-hmm. and he's also doing educational work as well. But it's just up to us to go there and support these grassroots initiatives as well. Like um, there's a Bali. Indonesian conference, Bitcoin conference that's going on in October and you're invited. But um, these things are going to help accelerate that understanding of Bitcoin because you're going to have local people going to meet Bitcoiners, listen to them talk about Bitcoin, get orange pilled. And that's really the only way. It's just proof of work. There's no easy solution to get a million people or in the case of Indonesia, 270 million people ramped up overnight. It's going to be a lot of work and a lot of people talking about Bitcoin to them 24-7. Right, right. Is the what is money question, is that instrumental in your orange pilling of these individuals? I think it is. I mean, it really comes down to changing their thinking about Bitcoin. There's just so much misinformation and FUD in the media Mm -hmm. that it's difficult to combat that it's easier to just say Bitcoin is money, Mm -hmm. Right. Sailor likes to say Bitcoin is a commodity, but I like to go even simpler. Bitcoin is just money, and that generally gets them understanding faster because it is. It's whatever you want it to be. Bitcoin is just information really. Yeah. It's just we happen to use information as money or use a commodity as money.
5: Bitcoin is basically an insurance policy on central banking or fiat currency. So The more money that is printed in the world, the more valuable that insurance policy becomes. Um, and kind of a related second one is if you just goods and ser- okay let's say it like this money is something we use to acquire goods and services goods and services require work to produce mm-hmm. if you have a money that doesn't require work to produce then that's money. that's bad money it's money that's going to be used to steal from you so if you're holding a bunch of dollars or fiat currency then someone else can print them and you can't they can use that to buy goods and services and inflate prices on you. So I can get into like the evils of money printing if someone will, if they, because a lot of people understand that, that don't understand Bitcoin. They're like, yeah, printing money's bad. I understand that. If, you, if they know that much, then you could just say, okay, Bitcoin is money you can't print. So like, that's pretty simple. But if they don't understand the money printing thing, I'll try to go with the insurance policy analogy. And it's like the next time you hear them, you know, increasing the debt ceiling or quantitative easing or any of these other euphemisms for printing money, just know that insurance policy is going to become more and more valuable. And it's, you know, pretty directionally true. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25 and one. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system, with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com whatismoney what is money. That's netsuite.com whatismoney what is money to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com whatismoney what is money. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies. iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chamber's encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send chamber encrypted messages. Even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network-connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin chambers today for friends, family, and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. And but there's this weird phenomenon with Bitcoin that I I think we're all kind of dancing around. No one really understands how it works, but something about the attributes of good money tend to imprint themselves as attributes on the people that really embrace it doesn't mean you use you send a Bitcoin transaction that makes you more truthful. Yeah, but it's like you become an adherent or uh, you become studious of the rabbit hole, and it actually starts to change you, right? Like it changes your time preference, changes your dietary habits, maybe it changes your orientation towards having children or the community, or whatever else. And although I don't, I don't think anyone can explain how that works. It yeah. definitely seems to work right you get more people that are just what did Jordan Peterson say he goes you have to embrace truth no matter what and then just accept that as the adventure of your life whatever the consequences are gosh it sounds overly grandiose maybe it's like we're trying to like save the human species in a way it's like humans destroy themselves by creating fiat currency and all of the all of the institutional bullshit that gets built up around it Healthcare being a big one, military being another big one, mainstream media being another big one, big pharma being another big one. And all of it, at least maybe not all of it, but a lot of it is rooted in this money. And so Bitcoin is just people standing up saying, this is not good for my species. So I'm going to go against it no matter the cost. There's something that a lot of us believe in, and just in terms of like the
4: biblical truth, there's just Mm -hmm. the innate truth that we are. when we are created it is woven together within us and you know jesus in the bible talks about money Mm -hmm. more than anything Mm -hmm. you know and he talk he warns about the love of money Mm -hmm. you know and in essence what we have done is built a system that the love of money is pervasive that's right and there is no checks on that and therefore we are you know printing trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars who are hurting the most vulnerable it's not hurting me and you i mean it is in a way but it's you and i are gonna be fine yeah right it is the people who are yeah exactly yeah yeah. um it is the people who are you know middle and lower class who are feeling this seven eight nine more likely 14 15 16 percent inflations that now can't pay for food now can't pay for housing that now can't do these things and it's like take care of the, the most vulnerable within your population. And what are we doing? We're doing the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas the upper class is getting larger. Most of that money being printed, printed over the last three or four years, where has it gone? It's gone to the upper class, not to the, the, the folks. And we're now ripping away their money from them through this inflationary yeah. you know, process. And it's like, man, like, bitcoin is the only way that i see to get around with that and that's why i think i'm going to you know talk to the thank god for bitcoin um thing it is the only way in which we're going to be able to keep people from being um lured in by that that love of money and therefore a biblical a biblical standard you know some theologians will probably disagree with me on that but i mean i think it is very very clear
5: yeah i mean that to, you're about to go speak. And thank God for Bitcoin. I'm an investor in the media company. We co-authored the book. Like, there's a strong argument, right? It's honest very weights true. and measured. Honest weights and measures. Uh, I think it's also very telling that the one time we see Christ invoke like righteous anger in the entire Bible yeah. is against the money changers. And it's like, what are what are Bitcoiners standing against? The money changers, yeah. central bankers. The, the world is run by uh, a, a deceptive institution at the least. We'll, we could just leave it at that. But um, we, yeah, we, we, we have to follow that example, right? It's ancient wisdom, if you will. So asking the question, what is money, seemed to be a kind of a psychological mirror, perhaps, in that the way that guests answer the question. Is somewhat telling of their own character Uh, now this is a hypothesis I'm not saying that this is a conclusive fact it's just an observation I made after we released it I listened to that episode Um, and a a, a for instance would be like you know if you listen to the sailor series um, he'll describe money as the highest energy that humans can channel or uh, I think he also calls it something like an amalgam of all the powers that humans can possibly harness, right? So you can use money, for instance, to acquire or channel kinetic energy, chemical energy, gravitational energy, thermal energy, et cetera, et cetera. Money's like this meta structure that lets you um, tap into really anything that humans are, are capable of harnessing. And... Um, so his answer to that question, it kind of tells you something about Sailor's, perhaps tells you something about Sailor's actual psychology. And that, well, he's a he's a powerful guy. He's an effective entrepreneur. He's a he's a historian, right? He's thought deeply about these topics for clearly many years. He's very widely read. Um, and he's, you know, focused a lot of his reading on like ancient Roman history and uh, other very successful entrepreneurs like Carnegie and, um, you know, the oil tycoons, steel tycoons, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like his perspective on money, not only is it, is it telling about kind of the nature and structure and ontology of money itself, but it's also revealing something about the actual individual answering the question too. And then if you go forward one series to to the Booth series, um, you know, Jeff Booth will give you this very academic description of how money works and how it flows between people. But then he also takes a step back and says something like, to the effect of money doesn't really matter. You know, it's more about love and relationships and belonging. And so that seems to be kind of telling about how, how he individually chooses to lead his life. And, um, I don't know. I'm not I'm not maybe answering your question what is money per se, but it's just the thing I've been thinking about recently is that it asking that particular question had this very unexpected result that just occurred to me like I said when we released this thing a couple of weeks ago that it seems to be serving as a psychological mirror of sorts that uh, that in which you see the the subtle or perhaps deeper character of the individual answering the question reflected. And, um, that's been, I don't know, like it was just, it just caught me off guard. So like, every time I think I feel so fortunate to have launched this show. And then now the whole world, you know, you've got Brie Dalio on national TV saying that the defining question is what is money? And then you've got Elon Musk, uh, making these big appearances saying, you know, what is money? It's like, it seems to be like, it's, quickly becoming the defining question of our era and maybe in 50 years time something like that we'll look back on it as such. Um, so I feel very fortunate to have kind of struck gold, digital gold perhaps, um, or, or posed a question that's very concordant with the current zeitgeist I already had that gratitude and appreciation in place, but now, again, watching that composite episode, it, like, it blew my mind again. I was like, oh my goodness, wow, you're actually seeing something else about, there's a conversation beneath the conversation, right? There's a, there's a response beneath the response to the question. And I, I found that to be fascinating. And um, again, I call it a psychological mirror. I don't know, this is like a, a term that I've put to this thing that I'm trying to describe. But it's interesting to me again that it's most of the answers we have for money tend to have this reflective property. You know that it 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 you know money is not wealth, but it reflects wealth. Um. Prices are, it's like a prices are a reflection on the consequences of human action in relation to capital, and um. You know I think this speaks to. The relationship between money and human rationality that human rationality is this this self-reflective faculty that we have and money somehow enables or extends that that we're, we're actually able to extend human rationality into the material domain in a very real way so um yeah just a very very interesting question and i'm just grateful to have have it as the namesake of the show and it keeps yielding more and more insights to me. So, yeah.
3: And it's interesting because I did notice when Elon answered that question about, and and what was striking to me was his response, which was basically along the lines of, there needs to be inflation, right? So you could tell that he hasn't fully taken the orange pill, you know? and then yep. uh, the Ray Dalio clip, I'm very familiar with it as well. But I think what was fascinating to me about what you just said about is the way that you look at money is really a reflection on yourself. And I think mm-hmm. that people really underestimate how vital money is in a society, right? It, you know, it's the, not said it best, right? It's, it's half of every transaction in the world, right? And if that base layer is fundamentally corrupted or it's broken, Right. Um, I think there are so many downstream effects to that, so many, so many consequences to that, that people have no idea what the root cause of are. But I'm going to double back. I'm going to go back to the original question because I'm very curious, Robert, what is money to you specifically as an
5: individual? Well, it's a great, <laughs> great question. And now that I've made that meta step talking about the psychological mirror, I'm extra cognizant of my answer. But I, you know, when I originally, this is before launching the podcast, I'd always thought about money as time, you know? And this is something that I, I incorporated into Masters and Slaves of Money in particular that was looking, I think the opening line in that piece is like money is a tool for trading human time. So an ingredient to basically everything of value in the global economy is human time you could also call it human effort or human energy or human attention perhaps but uh the common denominator that i always focus on was just time itself and i i guess the reason i did that was because even in the term like the term economize right it means to to accomplish the same or greater result with less effort the same or less effort right you're actually increasing output per unit of input and so what we're doing when we trade with one another is allowing each of us to specialize in a very fine uh, stage of a production process and then interlink ourselves together through trade such that the thing that we ultimately make is something that none of us could ever make individually you know we get these incredible innovations and uh there's a great essay on this titled i pencil if you've never read it it's beautifully poetic describing essentially how no one no one no individual on earth can construct a pencil that it it is this emergent good from you know the wood is from this continent the lead is from that continent the metals from here and it, it takes all of these people engaged in a collaborative effort to create something as simple as a pencil. Um, and so I, I am, I still, th- you know, sailor blew my mind when we started talking about money as energy. Cause it was just like, it was like, Oh, of course it's energy. I'd never thought about it that way, but my original, um, view on it had always been that it's, it's more time than energy, but ultimately, I guess the deeper I've gotten down this rabbit hole, the one thing I keep coming to is the insufficiency or inadequacy of language itself. There is that, I had, um, this guy shared a quote from Ray Kurzweil on the show who said that language is a very thin pipe through which to describe something as complex as consciousness and i feel that really landed with me um we're all human beings we're all living in this complex fluid uh fully interconnected reality Right. It's a continuum, right? The world continuum that everything affects everything else, everything touches everything else, either directly or indirectly. Um, it's all energy, it's all liquid, something like that. And language, with language, we're slicing it and dicing it, right? Into little discrete data packets such that we can talk about it, we can think about it, we can reflect upon it. And, um, I think maybe that question, what is money is like, it's pointing at that, right? It's like, if we, we call money this, we call money the language of value. So clearly it's a very, it's linguistic sort of in its nature and that it, it allows us to communicate about, you know, the consequences of human action. Um, one way I've, I've thought of framing this that was useful for me was if Words are the media of exchange of human conception, then money is the media of exchange of human action. Whereas, like, maybe even your five senses are the media of exchange of human perception, right? We're actually perceiving the world with our five senses. We then convert that and wrap it into these little discrete data packets called words to develop conceptions from that um and somewhere between their perception and conception we get this emergent socioeconomic phenomenon called money that's the medium of exchange of human action right so it's actually it's it's a very high signal communication device um and somehow supersedes language or, or is very hard to describe obviously which again can com- explains why so many people have so many different answers um and perhaps also explains why it is it functions as a psychological mirror because if it if it is that complex it's like it can be answered in a lot of different ways and when you attempt to answer it it's kind of like in quantum physics right where the observer participates with the observation if you've ever heard of the eyes the heisenberg uncertainty principle the act of observation actually changes the thing that you're observing so that you can never know simultaneously the exact position and trajectory of a particle. You can know one or the other, but you can't know both with, uh, it's like, it's a, again, it's a continuum, right? The more, you know, the trajectory, the less, you know, the position and vice versa. So something about what is money? It's like, what is the word? What is language? And obviously, that's a very deep question too. When you look at something like the biblical corpus, right? The opening, <laughs> in the beginning, was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Like it's there's something very essential about this intermediate, this intermediation, um, this intermediating function, I guess you would say, that both language and money performs, and it is exceedingly difficult to describe. Uh, but also exceedingly important
6: and I think Austrians the prominent Austrians really failed on this issue because they had the tools to understand Bitcoin but they were so badly misapplied and a lot of them I think are not very um, uh, familiar with technology uh, and and to understand Bitcoin is a multidimensional thing right mm-hmm. you, you need to understand economics but you also need to understand a little bit of computer science, a little bit of legal theory, a little bit of game theory. And I think the Austrians, a lot of them were missing some of those pieces, so they dismissed it really early. And I think it's one of the great tragedies in the history of Austrian economics that we have this new form of money created out of nothing that has the attributes of the best money that we've ever seen, that humanity has ever seen, and it was misunderstood. I think there was a huge uh, miss for Austrians and I think a big failure. Um, that's not to say I, I have any animosity towards any of these Austrians. A lot of them are people who I've learned a lot from and who've had a lot of influence on me. I just think it's a big failure and I, I, I really think that bothers me most is that they never came around to realizing how important this is. Sure, This is something that requires attention and study and the thing I think it really should teach us is that we need to be students of money and you know i think you've got a great title for your podcast because this is a this is a huge question that we don't understand i think bitcoin exposed that the austrians as insightful as they were on money in, in the history of money uh, missed something here mm-hmm. and bitcoin is something that can teach us and i think we should be students i think we should be have some humility and say what are the things that we missed in the Austrian account on the origin of money mm-hmm. that aren't correct? And I think there are a few big ones to be honest that, yes. that we' we'll missed.
5: yeah, I think the central issue here is what's called the uh, Mises regression theorem. hope I'm saying that correctly. And it, just to echo back what you're saying, like even the great Austrian economists, right the, the libertarian philosophers, these the, the giants upon whose shoulders we stand brilliant, right? In many respects, they still kind of missed this thing about money. There's something about money that even they didn't understand that they perceived Bitcoin as something that did not fit into that framework. And uh, clearly we're generalizing here. I'm not, I think we're going to focus on particular thinkers like Rothbard, Mm -hmm. um, in, in his evaluation of the Mises regression theorem. But it's just, I think another reminder of how complex of a topic this really is. And after having done this show for 300 plus episodes, I still have more questions about it than I do answers. And we've accumulated a lot of answers to the question, what is money? But it, each answer seems to generate more questions. So it's not no one's fault. We're not pointing at anyone saying like they messed up or screwed up. But it's, uh, I think, just a reminder of how complex this domain is
6: absolutely and money is such a central thing in any economy mm-hmm. uh it's it's a critical thing to understand and you're absolutely right we don't have a full grasp on it mm-hmm. um so you mentioned the regression theorem and the regression theorem was uh it was a concept created by ludwig von mises in the early 20th century and it was he was trying to explain where does the value of money come from why do people value why does why is the price whatever it is today why is the price of bread a certain way uh and his explanation for it was pretty simple actually um and and intuitive when you think about it it's one of those ideas in economics when you think about it you're like oh that's obvious mm-hmm. well the price of bread is $4 today because it was $4 yesterday and most people remember that and they would think it's something's wrong if it suddenly jumped to $8 they would go mm-hmm. to the grocery store and say i'm not going to buy your bread it was $4 yesterday yeah. And well, why was it, you know, four dollars or close to four dollars yesterday? Maybe three ninety nine yesterday. Well, it's because it was that the day before, and it, his idea was that you kind of regress back in time, but but to what? Where does that original value come from? Mm-hmm. And his explanation was that it comes from some, uh, useful commodity value, like before it was money it was useful in some way Mm -hmm. and so with gold gold used to be money in the 19th century where did that original price level come from it came from the fact that people used gold for other things Mm -hmm. so jewelry um, religious ceremonies that those kind of Mm -hmm. things and then uh, von Mises had a student Rothbard prominent Austrian economist and libertarian and brilliant thinker great guy I have a lot of respect for him Um, And he interpreted Mises' theorem in a stronger way, which is, I interpret Mises' theorem as, here is an explanation for the origin of money as it happened with gold. Right. Descriptive. Yeah, descriptive. Exactly right. And Rothbard went further and made it prescriptive. He said, this is the only way that money can come about. Mm. Money can only come about in this process, and it must always originate as a useful commodity. And I think that influence Rothbard, was hugely influential influential in Austrian circles and still is. Okay. Um, I think that is what influenced a lot of modern Austrians to think that Bitcoin can't be money because it wasn't a useful commodity. It was just this digital thing, and it wasn't really used for anything. Yeah. Uh, and so you have a lot of Austrians and Goldbloods Bugs say this is not physical, it's not tangible, you can't do anything with it. So it can't possibly become money because of that original use value not being there. But of course, you know, this is something that we can learn from. We can learn that, hey, something can gain an original value just as a whimsy. Mm -hmm. And that's what Bitcoin was. Why did people value it? Because humans sometimes value things for no reason at all. Mm -hmm. It's just cool. And those, you know, original cypherpunks who are playing around with Bitcoin they didn't know how to value it, they said, you know, okay, how about 10,000 Bitcoins for a pizza? Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm.
6: They just put a random price on it, and Mm -hmm. someone was willing to pay, and so you get that first price. right? And that first price with gold may have been, uh, you know, religious use, or may have been jewelry. First price for Bitcoin is just a random occurrence. But that's okay, and that's how price formation can begin, as a random occurrence. And then it builds on that, and the next time someone says, well, I saw that someone bought a pizza for 10,000 Bitcoin," that seems like some kind of reasonable value so I'm going to build on that and eventually a price level is discovered over time mm. I think that is one big mistake that the Austrians made was that thinking there's an r- original commodity value
5: one of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape to take care of my brain power I do many things such as striving to read write exercise and meditate daily one of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is mind lab pro MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials, and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com breedlove. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating Lightning payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, and it is not a secret that the medical system in the US has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment rails, which introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement. By integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, payments between members can now be made with near zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com/breedlove today to sign up.
2: The reason I love the idea of your show and and the mission that you're on to talk about what is money is because the one lesson that CIA taught me above all other lessons is that if you have the ability to create opportunity, mm-hmm. you never have to be the one waiting for it. Mm. And what money really is, is opportunity. Huh. That's really what money gives you, huh. right? And that's why everybody's on a hunt for more money. Mm-hmm. Whether they're poverty-stricken or whether they're wealthy, everybody wants more money. Even the asshole out there that says, oh, can I cuss on your show? Of course. Did. yes. <laughs> okay. Even yes. All about freedom here. Yeah, <laughs> who says... Money doesn't matter. Money's not important, yeah. right? Probably has a full-time job, right? And push that guy a little bit further or push that gal a little bit further and guess what they're going to say? Eventually they're going to say, "Well, if I wanted to do that, I need more money." Yeah, right? So yeah. there there becomes this friction point because we all really do see money as opportunity. We just don't want to call it that.
5: Yeah. No, that's a great framing actually. We often describe money as like a tool of optionality right it can be used as an option to acquire any good or service in the marketplace but that's all that's very synonymous with opportunity right it's money is the freedom to mobilize human energy
2: towards some aim you might have, right? Whether that's a business or a, a charity, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're exercising your option for more comfort when you buy new shoes. Yes. You're exercising your option for more confidence when you buy a nice suit. Right. Right? You're exercising your option to to control your social status when you buy a nice car. That's right. Right? I mean, it, that's what we're doing is we are buying ourselves an option. Yeah. I know I am certainly, with my business, I am absolutely on a mission to grow and build wealth. Yes. And I don't hide that. I'm not embarrassed by that. I don't think that's shameful. Yeah. Because any wealth I build gives me options, but it also gives my wife options. It gives my kids options. Right. It gives the legacy I leave behind options. Because guess what I didn't have when I was a rural 16-year-old student in Pennsylvania? I had no fucking options. Yeah. I don't want to leave that behind. That's not the legacy I want to leave. Right. We have the chance to change that. Yes. Forever. Forever. Yeah. Right. Everybody listening right now has a chance to change the legacy that was handed down to them forever.
5: Yes. No. It was very, very inspiring, and I think that's a, that's an original answer to the question: What is money? Actually, is <laughs> something like liquid opportunity. Um, it does afford you that. What does that framework call? You said is rice. What are those core motivators? Yep. Your core motivational levers. And so, money obviously is a major reward lever. Correct. And so it makes sense that if you can monopolize and control a money supply, you can centrally manage that R in a lot of people.
2: Yep, exactly. And money is also part of an ideology. Yeah. And this is one of the things that most people don't understand. Most people who, the people who accuse uh, others of being greedy Mm -hmm. completely miss the point. Most people who may appear greedy are actually not greedy. Yeah. They don't want money just because they want money. There's an ideology that they're carrying that is inherently tied to what the money can bring. Yes. The money brings security. The yeah. money brings options. Yeah. The money brings respect. The money brings power. Yeah. It's not the money itself, it's an ideology that's connected through the money.
5: That's a great point. Yeah. It's uh, Mises always says no one wants a, to increase the quantity of money they have. Actually, it's the purchasing power that they want. So it's the, the options yep. that the money affords you. And it is interesting because money has an ideological side to it, which you would think was just subjective at that point. Mm. Like we could make glasses money or bananas money or anything, but there are objective constraints to what functions as good money, which I guess is sort of super ideological in a way. Mm. So it's interesting, but you know, even on our U.S. dollar bills, in God we trust, right? There's ideology right there Right there on the dollar bill. Um... But there are also things beyond just the ideology that determine what makes good money and bad money. So it's it kind of crosses both both worlds. It seems like
2: right, and that's what makes money such an interesting and complex thing. Yeah. Whenever anybody tries to boil it down to something simple, there's there's educational value in thinking about yeah. money as something simple, but you're missing the 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 nuance. You're missing the more sophisticated understanding that could be had. Yes. If you think of it in those terms.
5: Yes. As someone that's been asking a lot of people the question for three years (laughs) solid, I have more questions than answers to this day. And it's, yeah, I just feel very fortunate to have stumbled across this question because it seems like, um, what does it do? It highlights the complexity of the world and perhaps the insufficiency of language. Like we're using language by necessity to describe the world, to interact, to think all these things, but the map is never the territory, right? The territory is always
2: way more complicated yeah. than our map. I like that, the map yeah. and the territory Yeah, yeah. a lot. When you consider war as a topic itself, wars are not fought over ideals. Mm-hmm. They never really have been. They've always been fought over economics, mm-hmm. right? When you look at the Gulf War, the Gulf War was a war catalyzed because of oil, mm-hmm. Right. I mean, even if you go all the way back to the Napoleonic Wars, the Napoleonic Wars were a response to boycott from uh, boycotts from the UK that were preventing goods from getting to Napoleon right. France, right? Right. So, wars—the thing that makes it worth it to spend all that money and spend all those lives—is economies, one hundred percent, and uh, that's what we're seeing right now, even with Ukraine and Russia. Yes. Right. It's not a war of ideals. It's not a war for this is the future of democracy. Those are all things that we're told. Mm-hmm. It really is a war. Because Russia knows, Russia knows its future economic livelihood is Mm -hmm. tied to Ukraine, and it cannot let that go.
5: Yeah, no, that's a great framing. I'm reminded of the Bastiat quote, if goods don't cross borders, soldiers will. Mm. And as I often say on this show, I say money is the means and ends of all warfare. Money, sort of interpreted broadly, because obviously it's resources, right? Could be land, oil, productive capacity, whatever it may be. But the point is you're only going to engage in the most expensive enterprise in human history, which is military combat, if there is some prospect of economic gain. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it, right? It's not a profitable business. You wouldn't engage in it. Um, And this also plays into where we think Bitcoin is such a radical phenomenon because it makes those resources harder to steal. If people have recourse to put wealth in something like Bitcoin, very hard to confiscate that forcibly so presumably that's in the long run there's a disincentive to armed conflict i analogize the placeholder function of zero that i just described to this that gives it this increased information density or utility right to the function of money which is traditionally the first function mentioned which is a store of value or a store storehouse of wealth is another way people put it and so what I'm saying there is like, okay, again, the way I just described zero gives the numeral system more economic utility or information density. Right. And my, again, analogy here is that if you have the same, the analogous function in money is the store of value. So if you have a sound store of value, if you have a place that you can put the fruits of your labor, that is maximally insulated from the risk of the market. That this gives people a reliable savings tool. Now, when you can accumulate savings with a high degree of confidence that you're not going to be, you know, robbed, stolen from, otherwise violated, that is, that underpins the investment process. Actually, so investment when people actually uh, accumulate capital and put it into a a business process or an entrepreneurial activity with the intention of producing more capital so it's not you're not you're not consuming the capital you're trying to re you're investing it right you're putting it putting more of it at risk but the intention again is to create returns right to create profits the extent to which civilization or society has a sound store of value is the same extent to which they are incentivized to invest. If you don't have a sound store value or sound savings, then you don't have anything to invest, right? You're in a much more precarious or risky situation. So you would be disinclined to invest because you'd just be trying to protect your purchasing power. It's another way of saying, the more risk there is in savings, the less risk you're willing to take in the marketplace. So if if your savings are at risk, you're less likely to want to take on additional risk in the marketplace through investment. If your savings are insulated from risk and they're they're, they're very low risk, then you're more likely you'll be more inclined to take market risk uh, or risk in the marketplace. Let's say by by engaging in investment. So, you know, just as money is this medium through which capital is getting continually cycled to its places of highest and best use. Um, zero, interestingly, in a numeral system, gives us the ability to recycle numbers so that it's, it's more informationally dense, as we described, right? Instead of using the Babylonian cuneiform, where you have all these unique symbols for each number, we can now recycle numbers one through nine to... Create all the numbers basically, right? With using zero and as a placeholder in different places as needed. So that's the first. I'm comparing that function. The placeholder function of zero is kind of like comparing it to the store value function of money. Both of them increase productivity um, and both of them enable their systems to scale, right? A zero based normal system lets. The numeral system scale and a sound store of value lets the economy scale by incentivizing investment. Money is this medium of exchange that leads to the acceleration of trade and innovation, right? It allows us to engage in a higher intensity, uh, in higher intensity free exchange so we can trade more quickly, more easily using money than we can without. And similarly, zero, by getting us into the domain of the negative and the imaginary numbers and later calculus, it actually enhances informational exchange, uh, which leads to all kinds of of civilizational advances or or epistemological innovations. Like, um, you know, we get into fractals, we get into complex astrophysical equations we get into calculus we get into differential equations like this this explosion of of mathematical and and knowledge-based innovations comes from zero functioning as this like medium between positive and negative numbers but the pre and this is uh this is something that austrians talked about in um in the mid 1800s in the marginal value revolution your preferences are ordinal not cardinal now the difference is uh your friends right your best friend and your second best friend and your third best friend that's an ordinal list of preferences right first second third fourth it doesn't make sense to say my first best friend is an 85 and my second best friend is a 65 and my third best friend is a 42 you know there's not an there's not a number attached to this preference. It's just, you prefer this thing above this thing, that thing above this thing um, versus a cardinal number, which is something more like uh, an actual quantity of something, right? Like this basket has 42 apples. This basket has 30 apples. This basket has 17 apples. Those are cardinal, those are counts. Um, but preferences are not counts. They are they are ordinal, right? As an in, in order of one another versus the baskets of apples, which are cardinal. The amazing thing about money is that it takes all of these ordinal preferences that everyone has in the world, everyone, right? Like pick a market, and pick a market price, copper, titanium, whatever it is. Let's say, I have no idea what titanium costs. Titanium, let's just pretend it costs $1,000 a kilogram. That number, that single cardinal number is a representation of everyone's ordinal preferences in the world. So everyone participating in the market for titanium, either as a producer, a consumer, a speculator, a trader, like whatever, anyone that's buying and selling titanium, all of the data of all of those market participants is basically the data that they know of in the world, right, their views on the future, their speculations about the future, their knowledge of the market, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is compressed into that one number. So all of their preferences are compressed. Their ordinal preferences are compressed to a single cardinal number. And that, that is why the price is so important. It, you know, you don't need, we don't need to speak in narrative, right? If there's a, a new titanium mine discovered that supply hitting the market and producers selling titanium in the market will drive the price down. You dip and then consumers on the other side, will they know, okay, the price on down, I can consume more titanium now. Um, producers that other than the one that discovered it also see the price declining. Well, they think, well, they should produce less, right? Because that there's less profit to be gained by by selling it. So there's this, this coordination function of the price, which I think is basically the most important coordinating mechanism in the world. It's facilitated by money. So money's like converting all of our ordinal preferences into this mathematized figure we call the price. And um, and this is very fundamental, right? This is this is this is rationality, almost like, In this way, we are extending human rationality. When I say in this way, I mean through money, we are extending human rationality into the material domain. We're transforming all of these exchange ratios and preferences into one number, like one input to the economy, which you could think of as like this giant calculator, this giant computer, it's distributed computing system, something like that. And, um, and it just speaks to the importance of, of ratios, right? Exchange ratios or prices to rationality itself, right? We can't make good decisions without good inputs or good clarity on the information being presented to us. And so I mentioned, I have a quote here, and this is from, uh, the book, zero biography of dangerous idea and he wrote quote in the beginning there was the ratio and the ratio was with God and the ratio was God unquote John 1 1 you may have heard that verse from the Bible uh, which is typically read as in the beginning there was the word and the word was what wo- was with God and the word was God that's how John opens the book of John opens And the author says, this is a more rational translation of John 1, 1, because the, the actual Greek translation, uh, the word that was used for word was logos, which means word war ratio. So the, I mean, this kind of gets to the importance of language, mathematics, money to human rationality, like these are foundational constructs. They're, they're adaptive mechanisms. They're mechanisms through which human beings are adapting themselves to one another and to the world. And to mess with that, right. To try and tweak the meaning of words or to change, uh, the objective nature of mathematics or to debase the money you're actually disturbing the human ability to adapt humans ability to adapt to one to adapt themselves to one another and to adapt themselves to the world. And so what I'm arguing here is that there's this ability that money and zero give us to more adequately and efficiently handle ratios. It's it's enhancing our ability to extend human rationality into the material domain, into our socioeconomic structures. Um, These are standards. These are operating standards. These are protocols by which we, by which the distributed computing system of the free market um, facilitates itself.